Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me in a bit will be Peter Salmon. Uh, both Peter and I have the distinction of uh, recording from uh, rooms that are heated by, or not heated, but cooled by fans. Uh, summer is here, which means... Um, Producing radio gets a uh, gets a lot sweatier when you're in a uh, room with the door closed to, to stop sound from getting out or in. Uh, the fans aren't running because the fans create sound on the background. It's not fun, and uh, we suffer for you. Boy, to be back in an air-conditioned studio again. Boy, that would be great. I digress, though. And Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. sweating and talking about the latest in pop culture and reviewing the newest movies, which this week will be the new courtroom drama Monster, which you can now stream on the Netflix, however you watch your Netflix. So uh, we are going to continue on with um, our summer review, our review of the various summer movie seasons, We've done 1982, 84, 85, 86. We're up to 87 now. And I was initially going to skip. I was initially going to skip 1987. But then I started looking at the the list, and there, there are a lot of consequential movies on there. This isn't one of the biggest summer movie seasons in terms of, like, big box office, but it is a highly consequential one, and I think you'll agree. There weren't a lot of money... Ma- I mean, there were money makers, but they weren't a lot of, like, big money makers. There wasn't an E.T. or a Star Wars or uh, an Indiana Jones movie. Um, but there were a lot of interesting films that would... Actually, some of them would go on to launch franchises. Um, some of them definitely... <laughs> some of them definitely did not. Okay, so we'll start on May 1st, 1987, and on that weekend we get Creepshow 2 and American Ninja 2, The Confrontation. Not exactly blowing the barn off in terms of box office numbers. I mean, Creepshow 2 is notable because, I mean, they're still based on Stephen King stories, but George Romero isn't directing. He did have a hand in writing the screenplay. Um, they, they both kind of have hands-off involvement of it, but they are hoping that, uh, obviously that it could become a series and a franchise in its own right. Creepshow 2 was the last of the Creepshow movies, and, I mean, there is a Creepshow anthology show on, um, Shudder, but, uh, other than that, this was the last you heard of Creepshow. As for American Ninja 2, The Confrontation, um, this was... <laughs> I hesitate to say it was the beginning of the end for canon, but like just chronologically speaking, as we get closer to the end of the 80s, you don't hear much from canon anymore. And American Ninja 2 is, has this cheap look. It's borrowing from a lot of different movies, up to and including Star Wars. It's just not great. And it's the sign that uh, the great canon empire is kind of slowly coming apart at the seams. On May 15th, we get Ishtar. Infamous for being one of the biggest bombs of all time. Unfairly? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, There's a complex web of personalities and unchecked auteurism, if that's a thing. Um, interesting to note, Elaine May is the director of this. She came from a theatrical background. And um, this was kind of seen as like, a way of getting a, a woman a big budget movie to direct 
interesting to think that, you know, maybe it's one of the reasons why women directors were held back. It's like, oh, you don't want to put a woman on this movie. It could be another Ishtar. It's not impossible to think that people thought that way. And indeed, Warren Beatty, who's one of the stars of Ishtar, um, the studio was, you know, very concerned about Elaine May letting the production go out of control. But there are a variety of reasons for that. One of them is, one of which is shooting in Morocco in the middle of a freaking, like, Middle East crisis, which is something that was happening at the time when they were shooting in Morocco in 85. Um, and Warren Beatty uh, was one of the authors of a lot of concern about Elaine May, but he did not want her taken off the film because, A, he would be the person to replace her because he has had experience directing um, and winning an Oscar for directing, and B, he was concerned it would affect his uh, feminist liberal bona fides. Um... So, <laughs> Warren Beatty, once upon a time, one of the most well-known, like, right up there with Robert Redford in terms of being, like, the liberalist of liberal Hollywood. Um, I mean, he's obviously kind of faded from the background. He's, he's an older man now, so he isn't as active as he once was. But uh, at the time, he was really concerned about that. Ishtar, though, remains due to a flurry of Bad press and um, subsequent box office disaster caused largely by that bad press. A story of Hollywood excess gone wrong. And I mean, what do you expect when you send a prop master into a market to buy a blue-eyed camel, not knowing that blue-eyed camels were rare? All right. On May 20th, we get Beverly Hills Cop Part 2, which further cemented... Um, Eddie Murphy's uh, Hollywood stature. It was a big hit in its own right. Uh, leaving aside, I think it was a bigger hit than the first Beverly Hills Cop, even. On May 22nd, we get Ernest Goes to Camp. And as much as we complain about, like, you know, movies based on theme park rides <laughs> or based on comic books things, Ernest P. Warhol was created as a pitch man. As, a, as as like this sort of like freelance pitch man, it was, he was used by a lot of different companies, up to and including Coca Cola. Um, but the character was so popular, uh, the, the the actor Jim Varney ended up doing a, a comedy special as Ernest, and then it, the next logical step was a film franchise, and this is how it started out. Ernest goes to camp. Um, I mean, we get into Ernest scared stupid a bit later, which I'm pretty sure if it wasn't direct to video was quite nearly directed video but um Ernest Goes to Camp was an initial comedy hit on June the 5th we get Harry and the Hendersons um perhaps the most consequential Bigfoot movie of all time um <laughs> it's produced I don't think Steven Spielberg had a hand in producing it directly but it came through his production company um Amblin Entertainment and it it, it does have Bigfoot uh, excuse me, Steven Spielberg's fingerprints all over it, because what is Bigfoot but uh, an earthbound Pacific Northwest E.T. Uh, when he goes to live in suburbia uh, with the family, uh, the Hendersons, um, ably led by John Lithgow. Kevin Peter Hall was the actor who played Harry. He was a very tall man who sadly died before his time a few years after this. But Kevin Peter Hall, will return later in this list. On the same weekend as Harry and the Hendersons, you get The Untouchables. Um, this probably single-handedly saved Sean Connery from B-movie hell, um, because at this point he was due... I mean, he had tried to come back as James Bond in 83 with Never Say Never Again, which was not can uh, canically part of the 
Eon Productions Bond movies, which is just about all every other James Bond movie from Doctor No to No Time to Die. Um, rights issues. Um, well, let's say, say uh, somebody went rogue and tried to make their own James Bond series with the original James Bond. That was kind of a failure. Um, but you know, Sean Connery fell back on uh, Zandaz and Outland and uh, Meteor at Highlander, which he did before the uh, before the Untouchables. And so uh, the Untouchables sort of brings him back to prestige. And of course, why not? It's Brian De Palma directing up David Mamet's script, um, led by Kevin Costner. A lot of stars. Also, it, it really is a great filmmaking class, um, and because I I know because I literally saw it in film class <laughs> the first time, um, in terms of like demonstrating on like how you edit, uh, how you put a scene together, the way it the the beats work. Uh, there's a couple of really great scenes in that that demonstrate really great simple how simple editing really informs a scene. Um, here's here's the Kevin uh, Peter Hall reference again. June twenty uh, June 12th, I should say, we get Predator. And Kevin Peter Hall, of course, played the Predator. Um, it's interesting to note that Predator is one of these things that has consistently... We've consistently tried to make it a franchise. We did Predator 2 in 1990. That didn't quite work. Years later, we're trying Alien vs. Predator. Well, before that, even, we get... No, 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 I, I am right. We get the Alien vs. Predator. We get that two movies back-to-back. And then... In 2010 or 11, we get Robert Rodriguez producing um, eight, uh, Predators. Um, and then the most recent example is a couple of years ago, the Shane Black, The Predator, which theoretically should have been the final nail in the coffin, like the Terminator Dark Fate. Or, yeah, Terminator Dark Fate. It's like, we can't make <laughs> a, a, a Predator movie in quite the same way that John McTiernan did, so why are we even going to try? Um, we'll see if that lesson holds up. On that same weekend, you also get The Witches of Eastwick, a great dark comedy from George Miller of Mad Max fame. Um, and th- there's a lot of really great comedies this summer, too. I mean, on, on June 26th, you get Dragnet, which invented the legacy quill before there was set, like a term for it, like when you think about Tron Legacy, or Star Wars The Force Awakens, um, or any of these uh, franchises that attempt to reboot by bringing in some people from the old version and extending the universe and then launching into a new series of stories. Dragnet did that first. Dan, Dan Aykroyd plays Joe Friday's nephew. Joe Friday was the character in the original Dragnet series. Um, the man who played Joe Friday's name escapes me right now, and uh, I could kick myself because it's right on the tip of my tongue. Jack Webb. Jack Webb. Um, so, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd plays Jack Webb's um, nephew who takes over and has a very similar um, interrogative style. Uh, Harry Morgan rep- reprises his role from the television series as the original Joe Friday's partner. So, you can see the, the similarities here. It turns out Dan Aykroyd was about 20 years ahead of his time in terms of the, the, you know where Hollywood is right now. Uh, speaking ahead of its time, we also get Spaceballs that weekend, the Mel Brooks send-up of, like, 80s sci-fi. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, it just, Spaceballs sort of calcify where people, how people think about these parody movies. But it also, you know, Spaceballs has a wealth of material. Um, 
it, in, as a result, Spaceballs is almost as well known as some of the movies and parodies. And, you know, honestly, there are some jokes in Spaceballs where you don't even actually to have seen the movies, like the end with um, when Spaceball 1 crashes on the Planet of the Apes. You don't really have to have need to seen Planet of the Apes to sort of get the gag. Um, but, I mean, that was kind of the, the nadir of, of Mel Brooks. I mean, you can make a, an argument for... Robin Hood Men in Tights, but by the time we get to um, Dracula Dead and Loving It, it's over. At least on film. He's done very well in theater since then. On July 3rd, you get Adventures in Babysitting, which is Chris Columbus's directorial debut after writing Gremlins, Young Sherlock Holmes, and um, The Goonies. So, you know, he came up basically working for Steven Spielberg. You also get Joe Dante, too, who, uh, you know, initially came from uh, Roger Corman's, but, you know, he also directed Gremlins and came through uh, the, the Spielberg school, shall we say, that way. Um, so you, that's an interesting face-off that weekend. The writer of Gremlins against the director of Gremlins, Inner Space versus Adventures in Babysitting. On July the 10th, we get Full Metal Jacket, which is Stanley Kubrick's second-to-last movie, and um, it's a fascinating movie because Kubrick was afraid to fly. I think he was afraid. That's the reason why he didn't go anywhere. He stayed in England. Um, so they shot a Vietnam movie on the back lot of a British studio, and it shows, but I mean, it, it's it's fascinating to to watch it because it, it, it gives this very, like, something's off kind of appeal um, in watching the film. It just feels wrong in ex- to an extent, and it sort of helps sell the image and, and the, the message of the movie. On July 17th, you get Jaws of Revenge, and probably the most consequential thing that came from Jaws of Revenge is Michael Caine's line about how you know it put an extra story on his house because he missed uh, getting his Oscar for Hannah and her sisters because he was shooting Jaws the Revenge in the Caribbean. You also get RoboCop that same weekend, and uh, I don't know what else I can add to RoboCop other than, I, you know, remembering Army of the Dead last week, and I just gotta say, if, if Zack Snyder wants to make a political satire, he should, you know, sit down and watch RoboCop and see how it's really done. On July 24th, you get La Bamba. Um, which is the based on a true story of Richie Valens, the uh, the fifties um, heartthrob uh, rock and roll star. Um, it's it's definitely noticeable because or notable because it's a Latino director with a predominantly Latino cast, and I mean that something like that is still incredibly hard to pull off, even in twenty twenty one Hollywood. Um, although we will get in the Heights sometime later this summer. Um, this is also the same weekend that uh, Superman for the Quest for Peace came out, the final Christopher Reeve Superman movie. On July 31st, we get The Living Daylights, which is uh, Timothy Dalton's first and second to last Bond movie. And we get The Lost Boys, um, which, uh, you know, <laughs> again, somebody tried several years later to turn into a franchise um, by bringing back, uh, oh, which Corey was it? Feldman? Yes, Corey Feldman. Uh, that was a direct-to-video. Two, I think there were two direct-to-video sequels to that. One of them starred Kiefer Sutherland's brother. I remember that. Um, on August the 7th, you get uh, Care Bears in Wonderland, which is this animated movie. It's technically a Canadian film because it was um, done by a Canadian company, but it, it, 
<laughs> I remember watching it on TVO as a kid. It was, it's this kind of like wacky. Um, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to describe. Also hard to remember. But I, I definitely remember it being like peanut butter and chocolate, like two great tastes smushed together. It's 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 a fun it's a funny thing. Um, you also get Masters of the Universe, which is the live action He Man movie starring well starring the body of Dolph Lundgren. He was um, dubbed, and you also Frank Langella as Skeletor. And there was never again another Masters of the Universe in the movie, no matter how hard they try. Um, you also get Who's That Girl, the infamous Madonna box office bomb. Uh, <laughs> good summer for, again, good summer for bombs. Uh, just to wrap this up, on, on August the 14th, you get Can't Buy Me Love, Monster Squad, No Way Out. Um, and then on August 21st, you get Dirty Dancing, the Garbage Pale Kids movie, uh, which I heard a joke about, or they're working on some Garbage Pale Kids thing. I vaguely remember the Garbage Pale Kids. I remember they were kids literally in Garbage Pails. And that's how the toys came. Um, and then in August the 28th, you get the Big Easy and Hamburger Hill, and that is the summer of 1987. For now, we have to focus on the summer of 2021 and our review of the new Netflix movie, which this week is Monster. We had not Monster Squad, just Monster. Makes it very hard to search on Netflix, by the way. But that's Peter's fault. We'll talk about that in a minute. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. Evans, please tell me what happened on the 12th of September of last year. Me and King hit a bodega. We went to the place, sat outside. Then we got a sign from him. Sorry, who? The guy sitting at the table next to the redhead. The records show Mr. Evans is identifying Mr. Harmon. Uh, please continue. We went in, and the guy behind the counter guy hated came up with a chrome. Can I help you? Sorry, chrome. A gun. And that was a clip from Monster. It's the new film from Anthony Mandler, and it stars Kelvin Harrison Jr., Jennifer Hudson, Jeffrey Wright, Jennifer Eel, Paul Ben Victor, Tim Blake Nelson, and John David Washington. So here we are being joined on the line by Peter Salmon. Peter, how are you today? Doing good, doing good. Still uh, living through this whole quarantine thing, but it'll be done soon. Gonna get that needle, and if you're listening and haven't scheduled it, you know, get that scheduled. Get that needle. Have you gotten a needle? No, no, I'm I'm going to. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Oh, okay, okay. Cool. Yeah, Wednesday at the U of G. 
Nice. Yeah, it'd be great. With this, how many? When was the last time you were on campus? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, probably sometime in the the beginning of 2020, whichever the last <laughs> day was before they completely shut it down. So yeah, it'll be crazy. Okay, it'll okay. be it'll be wild. Well, and I'm graduating too, so it'll be actually kind of nice to get to to kind of dip in and say say so mm. long to the. The university, university center, the university. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll be nice to go back there at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah, when we don't know. Um, but in the meantime, we have uh, shows to produce and movies to review. Which this week is Monster, um, which is a great choice because you know if. <laughs> you're just you're just just looking for something one word to find on Netflix. <laughs> Monster is a great one. Yeah, you don't have uh, to worry about a space or anything like that. Yeah, and like and uh, it was a couple of weeks ago we had Love and Monsters. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and I this, also I don't think yeah. the 2002 or whatever it was Monsters on Netflix anymore. So you, there will be no issue of searching for it. There will be <laughs> no confusion. <laughs> Uh, we'll have to uh, fact check that, but I think you're right. Anyway, uh, so this monster came out in Sundance in 2018. It is finally getting its uh, wide release on Netflix. So, Peter, why did reviewing Monster appeal to your sensibilities? Oh well, uh, I really, um, honestly, I really, I really like ASAP Rocky and Nast. So I I, I uh, had been seeing it on their like social media, so I I wanted to check that out. I also tried to look to see what else there is, and there wasn't really anything that uh, caught my attention that's going on right now. Um, but I didn't give a, a, a thorough look, maybe. But um, yeah, it just seemed like a, a good choice, a new one, and one that really, you know, it's been out for like three years, but hadn't really gotten much uh, attention. Yeah, and also the uh, the main uh, character. I haven't seen him in much, but he's an actor in Twelve Years a Slave, and he's he's great in that. So, um, yeah, I thought it was worth worth checking out. Hmm. Um, well, to to clarify, it was shown at Sundance in 2018, mm-hmm. but it Netflix didn't buy it until last fall, and they just officially released it a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, the reason you haven't been able to see this for for almost three years. Or actually, over three years. It's just because uh, nobody picked it up anywhere, and it's kind of a it's kind of a shame because I it, it's hard to think of a of well maybe not that hard, but it it really does seem to be a movie designed for the moment. Uh, not that it was uh, sort of designed; it's based on a novel called Monster as well. Um, and uh, yeah, very topical, very timely. Um, about a young black man who's on trial for a crime he may not have had a hand in, but is still facing considerable uh, time in prison. Um, the the various social, um, systemic, racist kind of things in the the system and the criminal justice system. Um, oddly, you know, in, in so much as like any filmmaker probably wants their stuff to be seen. Uh, quickly, I think this probably goes down a bit better um, post uh, Black Lives Matter last year than absolutely. Than it had. Yeah, I, it's actually yeah a pretty Brianna Taylor everything going on. It's a pretty great um, uh, release date. Yeah, it's it's it, 2018. There was a lot going on, but uh, 
the focus was more still on well it was still a very important matter but the the direct focus of issues was me too and um gender and and you know the uh black lives matter weren't as much of a focus as they are now and i just think it's yeah it was really smart like you said i don't think it was on purpose they just couldn't mm. find a place but it, it was a, a good happenstance of them finding netflix at the time they did mm. um anthony mandler the uh and w- another reason too anthony mandler what he did prior to this is like Spike Jones. He absolutely loves music videos. And I always have a lot of respect for those directors and like checking out their real films. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was another reason they don't uh, get enough, enough respect. You know, you look at music videos, you don't think as much about who directed this, you know? Well, I mean now, especially it's better now, or would you say the opposite? Well, I, I honestly can't remember the last time I watched a music video, like made for, <laughs> for something like, uh recorded in you know recent times like like uh i don't know who's popular right now like a, a taylor swift i don't think i've ever really seen a taylor swift music video or uh what's his name from uh jonas one of the jonas brothers one of the joe bros uh, you know i i just i <laughs> it's it's not a thing but i i know what you're saying i i just i i do not have a frame of reference to go and say like you know music but you're right in the sense that you know music videos do not get the credit they deserve as like s- sort of short films that mm-hmm. uh, get to show off directorial talent it's not it's yeah not just they could be the a real a real work of art you know mm-hmm. um and i think it's too bad like the carnage 2010 my beautiful dark twisted fantasy and um a number this year too by you know like phenomenal directors but we just don't really know their name you know um but i guess we still even though monsters we don't really know this guy's name but maybe monster is popular will rise and we'll know more about the beautiful work from anthony mandler who knows but uh you know what were your thoughts on monster my thoughts on monster um capital (laughs) okay No, it, it is. I think it's better than okay. Yeah, me too. I, me too. I was I was pleasantly surprised. I think it is very clearly a first film, um, and I, I don't mean that in like disrespectfully to Anthony Mandler. I, I think I think there's a lot of talent that shows uh, because he's also has a photog- mm-hmm. uh, a photography background as well, and I think that is reflexive in the way he sort of composes things more. And- more than I expected. More than I expected. Yeah. Well, and that's the main focus for music videos. So I think that's really what helped with it. And there's um, a lot of scenes that are like, uh, like for the main character Steve, um, when he's like remembering his pre-trial life. Um, lo- there's a lot of these beautiful, like golden hour lit scenes of um, his Harlem neighborhood. Uh, but like no matter what the time of day this is supposed to take place in, I mean, with the exception of at night, of course. But you know, anytime during the day, it just it feels so warm and golden and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and seeing really the uh, the different the different. I think there was just a uh, one, but seeing him in his uh, a gifted school too was uh, was really nice in his. Um, I think it was the photography room, and seeing him continue with that path was was yeah. really great. And you get to see his a lot of his photography, and I really enjoyed it. I like his uh, subway one. I like it a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of like sort of this r- r- reminiscing on um, <clears throat> art and composition and and uh, you know how we see things and it, it's it's the, the like the photography and it's really beautiful and David Devlin's the cinematographer and so like the, there's definite skill there. 
Um, the story itself, and grand, I again, it's based on a novel, which I haven't read, but um, th- there are aspects to it, like he's, you know, a lot of there's a lot of scenes in courtrooms, so, but um, you can tell Anthony Mendler's like ha- thinking to himself. You can sort of see the process going on in his head as he's shooting. It. It's like, how do I do this? so that it doesn't feel like I'm making an episode of Law & Order. Um, so there's a lot of handheld in the courtroom, and a lot of, like, like getting in really close up, and you sort of feel the intensity. You of, do with his face. Very good facial um, response yeah. to what was going on, what the judge was saying, and the lawyers. Um, and the same with ASAP Rocky, and you could even a lot of times see him in the background, you know, uh, just giving a, a quick uh, talk in the ear of his lawyer. And... Uh, just actions like that, you know, it was it was well done, I thought. Right, um, like, the moments the film is the most self-aware that it's a film is in those courtroom scenes. And, I mean, that's because, you know, there have been literally hundreds of thousands of courtroom scenes in movies since the beginning of filmmaking. So it's it's really hard to get original um, in terms of how you, you, you film that. But, I mean, so I'm, I'm willing to cut Anthony Mandler some, some slack about that, but it just... The film feels more self-aware in those courtroom scenes than it yeah, does. Yeah, exactly. And and even the, um, though you said there is a lot uh, of film set in a courtroom, uh, not that many based around you know uh, black issues, racism, and such. You know that I can think of. Like I know there's a few good men, and that more recent one, you know, the judge and everything. But um, it was nice seeing. Uh, I've seen it in a lot of TV shows. What this is kind of you know what's going on. A lot of like prime time. Um, ones that deal with you know race or whatever like empire and such but it yeah. is not well that's a bad example i forgot about the the dude but um this one i think focused very thoroughly on the courtroom as opposed to how it got to the courtroom like we mm-hmm. only saw glimpses of the actual crime and i uh, i thought it was nice to see um how the inmate reacted to the court and you could see him looking at the jury and you could tell that even with a black judge he's He's worried about being found guilty, you know, even though he's mm-hmm. well, I guess he is, he's, you know, you know, have to watch to find out, but <laughs> right there, there's it's very and I'm relieved that it, it, it sort of did it this way. It the, the this the way it tackles the systemic racism in the system, um, is is very it's not hard handed, I don't want to say it's soft handed because I don't think it it. It's it's clearly trying to draw attention to it, but there's a scene um, very early on with the prosecutor, who's played by uh, Paul Pe- Paul Ben Vicker, who's one of these actors who you He's will good. know him when you see him. Yeah. You you don't know his name, but you know him when you see him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's one of those guys, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, it's I mean you can build a great career on it, but the you know he's talking the way he's talking about Steve. Who by that point we've already seen in like kind of various like flashbacks and mm-hmm. you can so you've sort of been made familiar with him as like this good kid who's like somehow ended up in this situation. And the way he's just like talking about him, it's like, oh well, I mean, they're gonna the jury's gonna look at him and know he's guilty because we're gonna be there with, you know, all the other guys who are involved in this. Just like the very careful language that people would not typically ascribe as racist but is part of the the systemically racist system that is played very very well especially in the scene where he's doing his opening arguments i mean again this is kind of where it gets slightly over the top but you could totally imagine a prosecutor doing this where he points at um asap rocky and says monster and then he points at steve and says monster <laughs> and yeah. uh, 
you know, that's, you're, you know, part of a system that equates blackness with crime and equates crime with monstrousness. Um, and obviously you can't, you know, let a monster live among you. Monsters have to be slayed. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very, for, for, for us who are uh, white, it's very hard to understand where that, that, that kind of, uh, that particularly sort of hidden form of racism. And how but, much it would hurt. Yeah, it's yeah. not him saying the racial slur usually here, but it's right. him saying something that directs them into one negative kind of pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I thought that was very well done, too. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I... Usually I can be quite hesitant when they have celebrity superiors characters, but I thought ASAP Rocky and Nos both did uh, quite well. I really thought Nos's performance was fun because he was what i like to think kind of a homage to a lot of what he he sings about or the people that he really respects and looks up to he reminded me a lot of the um they didn't say it or anything but he he reminded me a lot of like you know one of those like philosophical guys in jail or whatever (laughs) like kind of what he is not necessarily nation of islam but one of those uh sectors of belief you know he was wearing those glasses that are very common yeah i just i really appreciated the <laughs> type of prisoner he was and I, I think he did a great job um and it's like a homage to like i said I've, i listen to him and he, he talks about um islam and things like that and he's just uh he, he he cares a lot about those kinds of uh inmates he probably knows some and uh he did he did a really great job except rock was okay i don't think he was anything special but um i really i thought Nas' small role was was enjoyable. If you're a Nas fan, I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, and except Rocky was good. I, I just you know I don't think there's anything special. I'm okay if he sticks with um, uh, music and uh, uh, fashion. Uh, not not Fendi, but the Rihanna one. Fenty, Fenty. Anyways, um, what were your thoughts on some of the uh, celebrity appearances? Uh, everything you just said uh, was above my head. But the, uh, the, the <laughs> to get to the performances, I, I did. I thought. I mean, I did look up ASAP Rocky's filmography, and he's done like things like Zoolander too. Um, yeah, yeah. But he's like in Pop Star. He was in Pop Star too, but he's playing himself, and so this is like one of the rare times he's actually playing a character. And I, I thought he did a great job. Like, yeah, yeah. I, nothing special, but maybe I was trying to overanalyze and see like, oh, why is he switching to this more? You know. I, I I mean it's it's interesting because um, the the character is again no one's kind of really drawn as the the title of the thing is monster and of course it's kind of subverted by you know what you see in the film because you know the ASAP Rocky character although he is involved in the crime that results in the the murder of a, a store owner um, and you you're kind of aware of that all through much of the movie before you even see the crime but um you know when you see his interactions with steve on the street and you know they're just talking and hanging out at the basketball court and steve's taking his picture and and things like this uh you know you you see you know a pretty interesting relationship because king he does do that well yeah king has different experiences like steve is very you get the impression because his parents are are very well off. Steve, mm-hmm. although he's black, Steve is somewhat sheltered. Um, King gives him this sort of street wise perspective, and of course, this is all that about- was. That was very well done. That was yeah. When he uh, pointed out the um, the brothel and everything, yeah, that was yeah. That that was well done. I had for, I had forgotten about that. Honestly, I think I think he was great. I just I I really want his next album, so I think I was kind of venting out some some hatred for him going to the acting then but well no, was, he was, I mean, he that was, was good 
that was a really great scene, that scene on the street corner mm-hmm. where it's like, you walk past that guy every day. Do you ever wonder why he sits there all day? Um, you walk past that laundromat. Do you ever wonder why you don't smell, you know, bleach? And yeah. Well, it has to do a lot with, you know, the neighborhood he grew up in and the culture and everything. So it, it shows also why, even though the main character is, you know, fine, like his parents, you know, he's middle class, like he doesn't have to deal with a lot of these poverty things. He's still... Yeah views this person as as an idol someone who represents you know his culture and everything so it shows that you know unlike what we think it's not every black criminal is not like super poor or whatever like it's or at least like dealing with racism of a crime they committed or something you know it's just racism all around right it's not even that it's just you know they they live on you know, a few blocks away, but they live worlds apart. But in the eyes of yep. this courtroom, it all basically comes down to whether they see a black kid as a monster or they see a black kid as a kid who exactly. you know, may have, you know, fallen in with the, you know, if he was white, he would say, they would say he's fallen in with the wrong crowd, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name? Alpha Dog, uh, Jesse James Hollywood. Yes. Uh, you know, they, he fell in with a bad crowd. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, John David Washington, he was good too. I appreciated yeah. it being just kind of like a minor appearance. You could tell because of that, him not saying or like becoming close friends with the main character that he was even higher up than ASAP Rocky or someone who like has dealt with like pretty like legit things. Like he in his bandana yeah. too, it looked like he was a member of. I'm not sure, but I think I forget <laughs> if it was black or blue, but some some gang, you know, and like some legit he's killed people gay not like a little kind of bank and just bank and robber one um i forget myself if it shows if he was the one that but yeah i i thought he did a a really good job um right i think it's important to to help show the different levels you know you're not a criminal or not a criminal there's kind of there's small crimes and then you can right get pulled up higher and picking a new one you know, seeding them out with a bunch of potential people and then having them do the lookout is very common. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember, but that is exactly what happens in the King of Staten Island, too. They mm-hmm. uh, just all of a sudden mm-hmm. say, yeah. Um, so that's that's probably something that's very common. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what I would do. Like if I was hanging out with my friends <laughs> downtown Guelph and we were by the Kit Kat and my friends were like, yo, I'm going to I'm going to rob. Just stay here. Look like I'm <laughs> to run away from my friends or just stand and look like I don't it's it's. It's hard. It's difficult. I don't know. Um, Number... I'm not saying I would help my friends rob, but I'm saying peer <laughs> pressure is a he- heck of a thing. And it's it's hard if they're just telling you to stand somewhere, you know? It's hard to – yeah. I don't know. I feel for him. I feel for him. And I thought that was that was well done. I think I looking back, maybe I would just pull a Pete Davidson and just run like he did. But um, I think something that shows too is the character in this film, maybe if he, he – maybe he didn't think about running because then what? Is he – does he not care about – kind of the black culture or, you know, I think there'd be a lot more pressure through that as well. Um, whereas Pete Davidson is just, you know, he doesn't have to worry about that. You touched on a number of things there, but one of the, uh, the important thing to note is like in, like in the King of Staten Island, this is a stupid crime. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's they, a wrote basic, the new, they know how to rope the newbies into them. That's what it seems. I mean, it's a basic smash and grab, uh, but it goes horribly, horribly wrong. And I, and I think that's one of the really smart things that the, the story does is like, this is just a stupid crime where things accelerate under out of control. And I mean, it also plays upon 
I mean, I get what they were doing through the whole film where it doesn't show you the crime. They go out of their way to not show you the crime until almost the very, very end. And I understand why they did that. And it was kind of essayed how this was going to turn out. But to, um, it, it plays very, very... I was going to say fast and loose, but I, I'm not sure that's the right thing. But it, it just plays that, you know, is this kid Steve? Was he, like, naive? That when they said to him, like, hey, go over and see if anyone's in the bodega, you know, because <laughs> why else would they be concerned about who's in the bodega if it was about them, nobody wanting to see them commit crimes? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it just, you know, he thought, well, what's the harm in, in doing it? Like, it, he was so sheltered that it didn't occur to him that they he was the lookout or that he he didn't think he was going to get you know, it was a big deal or he wasn't aware that this is, or, you know, ultimately the, the big thing is that the, the, the store owner is killed. That was probably never part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, stuff happens. And, you know, when a kid like Steve, if he were white, it probably wouldn't have gotten to trial, but he was black, so he definitely goes down with the ship, even though you have all these other characters, like uh, th- this one guy uh, who testifies against him, Cruz, I think his name was, um, and uh, and then Bobo, who's like the architect of the entire affair, <laughs> you know, testifying against, against Yeah, him. I loved that, I loved that. I think he knew he was going to go to jail anyways or whatever, he just didn't care. Or that, or he looked at ASAP in the same way ASAP looked at the main character it, down on him, right? Just like some lower right. kind of person. Um, it shows like just, you know, how <laughs> you turn these people against one another you know mm-hmm. they turn Bobo against um which is the the john david washington character they turn him against asap rocky steve you know gets off at the end spoiler alert but uh he you know that's kind of a betrayal of poor ace like everybody rolls over on asap rocky um, yeah yeah poor poor him well that's the thing too yeah you see that you know he's older he doesn't look he doesn't have the the parents or look uh I guess that shows that, you know, it's, it is not only, right? There is some class to it, too. But, sure. uh, yeah. Uh, so I thought that uh, that was cool. I forget, too. I don't think you're told how long he's going to jail for or anything like that. So he's 20 years. showing as a... Oh, okay. Did you say that? Oh, okay. okay. Murder, yeah. Oh, 20 years. That's, yeah, that's a long time. So, I mean, I mean, the way that... When you, when you see the whole thing play out, ultimately, it's like, did he give them a signal or not? And that's, re- I mean, that's kind of the ambiguousness that you, you kind of end things on. And and it, it's very much about Steve playing it out over in his head and thinking about, like, was I an active participant in this? Or did they, like, did I just go and buy a soda? Yeah, um, but it, it, it doesn't really matter because he's, right. even, it, that would just be his first time. And he wasn't the one who actually did the killing, you know? So, right. Um, but I mean, but I, I can see why he was yeah. excessive for like his relatively minor role in this. And I mean, exactly. It's it's just it's it's way more complicated than than I mean, it's way more complicated than the way it's being framed by the prosecutor and the police and sort of everyone else. And even Steve. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about this is that in, in Steve's inner monologue and how he's trying. And normally I hate voiceover stuff, but in this I appreciated it. But even oh, it Steve, yeah, it was, yeah. Steve's inner monologue is like, did I actively play a role in this or was like I a victim of circumstance? And like, how do I move forward? With, like when I'm still kind of walking through my head, like, 
what did I do that day? Um, and that's kind of deeply fascinating too. And probably also something that uh, like a white kid in the same circumstance probably wouldn't have to think about. I mean, cause this is going to, te- I mean, th- the, the movie doesn't deal with this at all, but I was thinking about it after the movie. It's like, this is going to be tagged to him for the rest of his life. If he gets pulled over. Oh, I immediately uh, thought that. Yeah. It's going to like some cop is going to put his name into it, into their, their, their com- uh, computer unit in their car. And it's going to come up like, Hey, this kid was once on trial for being an well, accessory to murder. He's gifted too. Right. And this yeah. now means he's not going to get into any, he lives in New York, right? He's not going to get into any of the Ivy Leagues near him. He's, he's, you know, he's or like NYU he could still, he could still, yeah, or N- NYU. Um, he could still uh, get into university, but I don't think the ones that maybe his uh, his hope was for, or the ones that a lot of gifted people have the potential to to go to. Well, I mean, assuming he's even interested on, in like pursuing that track. I mean, it's. <laughs> There's you know. uh, the which one of them is because uh, he loves photography. One of the Ivy Leagues uh, really is liberal arts. Mm-hmm. I forget I forget which one, but. There's one that's pretty pretty liberal art, but I, I know what you mean. There's there's I guess college for it too, or do you mean you think you just might not not go to anything after high school? Well, I just I think there's um there's a scene at the be- near the beginning where his film teacher, um, played by Tim ba- Blake Nelson, talks about how like he he kind of doesn't have a point of view, how he's kind of searching for like a, a narrative perspective, and I mean that kind of sums up the whole movie is um, he's trying to tell his story um, story of like, I guess being kind of a pinball in the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see at the end of the film, he's still kind of struggling with finding his point of view. And I think like, there's a big question at the end. It's like, does he can, does he pick up where he's left off where he's into film? And he's, you know, this like quiet kid who's kind of just, you know, walking around taking his pictures taking his videos um or is he like profoundly changed like he, he talks in the end about how he still hears the guy four cells down screaming in the middle of the night and mm-hmm. uh you know holding on to air <laughs> you know this kind of like imagery of basically him feels still feeling like a prisoner even though he's free and you have to wonder like does he pour that into his art or does he pour that into something else or does that like further rotten him from the inside out? And does he essentially, you know, get, get stuck in one place? I think that's a like the big question that you're sort of left with at the end. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah. See, I had been thinking it'll be a good path for him to focus on photography, but I think you're right that that itself could make him feel like he's just an archetype now for, for prisoners or, or people like, people who have been arrested and uh, black individuals dealing with all our racist, you know, judicial rulings and everything mm-hmm. um, and actions. But mm-hmm. yeah, so you're right. That's a, that's another aspect of this film that leaves some questions about how the court and the racism that he dealt with will change his past. Um, honestly, I feel like this film would be pretty great if you're like, like a black individual yourself who's, who's just finishing that. High school and into uh, into the arts and stuff. You, uh, <laughs> there'd be some stuff to relate to, uh, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I thought it was a good look. Good look at his career path. Yeah, this it's... was a, the the whole plot of this film was a good addition to kind of seeing his career path and you know, what that means for him as a black individual. Mm-hmm. The question is, like, is it's pretty clear 
going into what happened, he he was sort of sheltered and naive and you know you'd have these conversations with his father who's like does some sort of advertising where you know talking about the golden ratio and the use of empty space and things like that and it's yeah. like well, you know that's sort of i mean that is one form of knowledge and you know it's any knowledge is worth having but i mean just you know how does any of that stuff sort of matter when you sort of go into the system and and, you know, and and how that changes you, and and just instead of being like this erudite person, um, where you can have these sort of conversations with your father, it, it just you know how their status as upper middle class people um, in in the city ultimately didn't help. That he he still he's seventeen years old and he still goes to like adult jail, like yep. he was like a like he was on his third strike. You know, it's it's just. Um, in the end, he's just another, he's not even a black kid. He's a black man. He's a bl- another dangerous black man. And, and just, you know, when, when you go from like zero, zero being sheltered to like one eight, you know, to, to a hundred and, you know, a hundred is being like, like that vital visceral experience, uh, as a pawn in the criminal justice system. It's like, can you go back to zero? That's, I think that's a, a big wide open question that the film leads yeah. you with. Yeah. Um, any other uh, kind of small roles, like supporting actors, you really enjoyed? We just brought him up briefly, but I, I like the teacher. <laughs> I thought his appearance was fun. Um, he looks really familiar too, and I think a lot of people will recognize him. Yeah, Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else is he in? Uh, he does a lot of Coen Brothers stuff. Um, oh, you're totally in, right. You're uh, totally right. Oh my God, was... no. See, for me, oh my, go- oh my goodness, he is so good in the newest Watchmen. He's the tail man looking glass guy. Man. He is yeah. so good in that. Yeah, okay. So that's yeah, that explains why he did a great job. <laughs> um I, I, I well, it's such a small role, but I loved right. his little his little talk when he came in and he just gave soul defense to this guy, you know. I he's an example of of the liberal liberal high school college dudes right. trying, liberal trying to help guy. out. Yeah, yeah. But I mean he's it, a it was, good look at nice. maybe what more people how more people should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna say it's nice to see Tim Blake Nelson not play like a like a monster or a freak or a racist. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a good guy, and uh, he's a good guy in Watchmen too. But he's no, a good right. guy. There's there's a lot where he's yeah, he's not. He's he's got the kind of face where he could be a very big <laughs> serial killer or something. I didn't get a chance to comment on John David Washington because it, I like this was. It was at Sundance in 2018, so it's probably shot in 2017. So it's like. Right around the time, if not before, Black Lansman came out. So it was like before he was a star. So I mean, his appearance in this is kind of it. I know it wasn't intended that way, but it feels like one of those things. It's like, like all those movies uh, where like Bruce Willis comes in and does like a couple of days of acting, but he's like the the number one person listed on the the movie poster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brothers Brooklyn's like that. He's only in it for like ten yeah. minutes, but they promoted the heck out of it with him. It just feels like we got John David Washington for the day. <laughs> So he gave him a small role. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, but like we said, though, I thought it was, I thought it was good. He was good. He was very, yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Um, but Jenna, no, you're right. I was kind of looking at him and thinking like that. I, I did view him as John David Washington. Yeah, do you know was, what I mean? It was hard to view him as just the character he was. Yeah, um, I, I didn't think about it, but you were right. It was around the time that uh, Black Klansman really boomed, and, and then, he was uh, yeah, really, really coming about. 
yeah, no, and then uh, I, I, we did, we haven't mentioned Jennifer Eel as as his defense. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She was okay. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. She was all right. She was fine. Uh, yeah, and Jeffrey Wright as Jeffrey Wright as his dad, I thought was really really good. And yeah, uh, he was great. He's great in everything. I know you hate it, but he's really well, Westworld. When do he's, I hate? He's phenomenal. When did I say I hate Jeffrey Wright? I think you once said that you hate Westworld and you hope it ends. And well, that, especially because of Jeffrey Wright, which I was flabbergasted by. I did not say <laughs> I, I probably said I was not a fan of Westworld. Um, but yeah, I, I exactly. I definitely I did not say I was not a fan of Jeffrey Wright. Well, it's because of this film. It's such a great court one that I'm in I'm in lawyer mode, you know. <laughs> um no you're right though jeffrey wright was really great uh his um his like freakouts were were fun um and i think what he portrayed really well and same with the mom how hard it would be to see your son getting arrested not just because you're worried about what's going to happen but knowing you can't do anything like you can't you can't fight these cops and like take they're not kidnapping your kid like they're legally take you know it it, it would be very be very difficult and well, they, they showed they showed that well the way he, he ran in front of the police car but then eventually was just kind of have to let it go you know and especially again because they had their son on a very specific track that did <laughs> yeah. not that was not supposed to take him to the criminal justice system it was supposed to take him to college and it, it sort of blows up in their face like they're as parents they were they did everything right but their son still became a pawn in the system which i mean is ultimately kind of you know the <laughs> the the reality that a lot of black people live with every day and oh absolutely you know, well it's um it's kind of a reflection off of like people like like malcolm x and stuff who themselves mm-hmm. were uh you know raised more kind of middle class or yeah just kind of fell fell into it um, and not necessarily through the poverty and things they were dealing with, but more so the attributed is to their identification and their what they want to do. Like he wasn't doing it for it, it, it was harnessed more on belief and political matters than mm. needing to be in those pockets of Harlem and such for fiscal reasons. Right. Well, I have to get my fans back on. Uh, it's been a long review <laughs> in the in the in the heat here. Yeah. Uh, Peter, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, as per usual, uh, good old Mr. Tarak, YouTube and Twitter, and then my full name, Peter West the Salmon, on that TikTok. And that's it for this episode of the End Credits Show. We hope you liked it, and if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. Download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean, or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And uh, while you're on Spotify, of course, you can find the playlist for most of the music that you hear on the End Credit Show. Just open up your Spotify app and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media, on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show, and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph, and that is with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for more end credits, and we will, of course, see you then.
Thank you.